0: The Opium Smoker, by Arthur Simmons. I am engulfed and drowned deliciously. Soft music like a perfume and sweet light, golden with audible odors, exquisite, swath me with cerements for eternity. Time is no more. I pause and yet I flee. A million ages wrap around me with night. I drain a million ages of delight. I hold the future in my memory. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs and Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal, and this season we're covering the history of opium. So far, we've covered opium as a medicine and as a commodity. In today's episode, we're going to explore opium as a substance that people use and some become addicted to. We'll start with some of the early signs of opium being used more recreationally, And after covering some of the basic history of intoxication, we'll split the remainder of this episode, looking into the influence of opium in the East and the West, until we converge back in the late 1800s. I think it's important to start this part with a bit of an overview of what I mean by addiction and by drug. For a general definition of the latter, let's take the Wikipedia one. A drug is any substance that causes a change in an organism's physiology or psychology when consumed. If we take such a wide definition of drugs, without ascribing current legal or moralistic definitions, many substances would fit under this definition. Aside from the more obvious tobacco and alcohol, caffeine and sugar, for example, would most likely be considered drugs. So what makes a drug a drug? sure the potential dangers of certain substances over others have been known for a long time. Conversely, up until the 1700s or so, there were no major pushes to try and make substances like opium illegal for the majority of the time that people have been living alongside and using it. As we'll discuss today, the beginnings of laws against drugs had components relating to social change, including racial ones. For some more color, you can turn to Bonus Episode 1 with Caroline Acker, where we discuss what was happening in the late 18-early 1900s in the U.S., setting the stage for Prohibition, as well as how drug policy and medicinal changes were evolving at the time. Also, the most recent episode, Bonus 7 with Nidia Olvera, covered the beginnings of Prohibition in Mexico. These episodes also talked about some of the changes of the views of addiction, which also had some very moralistic components in terms of how it was being perceived. Jumping to a modern definition, according to SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, quote, substance use disorder occur when the recurrent use of alcohol and or drugs causes clinically significant impairment, including mental problems, disability, and failure to meet major responsibilities at work, school, or home. So by that definition, addiction does not seem to be predicated on a specific substance as much as it is based on the fact of how much is your life being impaired by the usage of an individual. Addiction is a very loaded term. General perceptions of users frequently differ from their realities. This is strongly tied to the deeply moralistic beginnings of prohibition in the US and the idea that those seeking deviant behavior might have something wrong with them that could be fixed, or at least that was one view. Yet the factors around substance use and abuse are deeply complex and embedded as much in social questions and a person's environment as anything else. I'm going to try to bring a guest on in the future to delve more deeply into this, but in the meantime, let's jump to the history. Around the time when trade was in its early stages, such as at La Marmota, beer was getting brewed for the first time in Assyria as beer, opium, and cannabis would spread across the world slowly, so would intoxication. If you think back on the first episodes of the season, you might remember that even as opium's use as a medicine and as a commodity grew, there weren't any signs pointing to large-scale addiction being a problem, despite the introduction of intoxication. As intoxication became a more available option, knowledge of overdose would spread as well. The writings of Dioscortes and others show that trade routes were more stable and that the knowledge of opium's use was pretty well known. The knowledge of both opium's benefits and dangers were shared amongst the Greeks, Egyptians, Romans, and others at the time. Rome specifically brought us the example of one of the first famous heavy users in Marcus Aurelius, who received opium as part of his regular medicines. When Aurelius was not getting any opium during one of his campaigns, signs of what we now know of as withdrawal were noted. Given the social status of Aurelius's doctor, opium ended up being a popular medicine in Rome, though I couldn't find signs of wider spread usage in Rome. Jumping over to China, we see another example of long-standing medical usage without major signs of addiction. The theme of balance and restraint was quite common, which helped moderate the usage. And so the main aspect of humanity's relationship with opium through the 1400s really was predominantly medicinal. Trade and commerce were overall still smaller, given that they were relatively limited maritime trade. That began to change once Portugal and Castile took to the oceans and divided the world in the late 1400s. As the medicinal and the commodity markets came together, which coincided with the European push into Asia... They laid the grounds for modern capitalism being inextricably linked with colonialism. One example is how the role of opium evolved to become a much more oppressive one. Recreational drug use was starting to change as well. A term for recreational drug was mentioned for the first time in the 14th century. We can turn to Marco Polo for another example of recreational usage. He spoke of a story where a ruler of a small Shiite sect would drug boys who would fall asleep and get woken up by singing damsels. These boys were known as Hasishis, which is where the word assassins would come from. They were given drugs to have the courage to do what they were trained to do, and were later given them to help them forget. By the 1500s, there were areas where concerns for the amount of recreational usage in certain areas was cropping up. This was noted in Persia and some other places around India and the Middle East. The same was seen to be a habit in the East Indies by the late 1500s. Though we're just focusing on opium here, it's important to remember that it wasn't the only good that started to get used more for trade and for an alternative state of mind. Substances like coffee were also spreading and were being used for their invigorating feeling. Coffee had been used by holy men around Mecca, both for medicinal purposes and to stay awake during their prayers. With coffee, the Dutch started a practice that would repeat itself in the future, trading coffee for opium. This pattern would repeat itself with other commodities, including pepper. The use of coffee by the Turkish was noted by Sir Francis Bacon, as well as tobacco and opium. Of the latter, he said that Turks could use a lot but, quote, to us, except in small quantities and with strong correctives, it is fatal, End quote. Speaking of opium, its use was reported by many Portuguese travel accounts. One traveler said that up to 60 grams of opium were eaten a day to treat their nerves. Duarte Barbosa said that an opium user, quote, could never give up eating this poison, for if he did so, he would die forthwith. As we see the experience of the opium which most of the Moors and Indians eat, if they left off eating it, they would die. And if those ate it who had never eaten it before, they too would die. The opium is cold in the fourth degree. It is the cold part that kills. The Moors eat it as a means of provoking lust, and the Indian women take it to kill themselves when they have fallen into any folly, or for any loss of honor or for despair. They drink it dissolved in a little oil and die in their sleep without perception of death. End quote. Another account from Batavia in 1659 spoke of how five men were killed after someone became mad and drunk after taking opium. Quote, it is said that this kind of killing was committed often, inside as well as outside Batavia. The reason is mainly the use of amphion, or opium, popular among these people. During my stay in Batavia, this was already the third amuck runner who was broken upon the wheels thanks to his murders. A Dutch physician confirmed this account. Quote, people who have an unstoppable aversion in life or in their diseases prepare themselves for their death. In their revenge against their fate, they also took to kill other people. To this aim, they swallow a piece of opium with the result that they are overcome by a frenzy to such a degree that they go on the street with a dagger to kill all they meet, friend or foe, until they are themselves are fatally stabbed. Despite what opinions were starting to form so far, the reality of overall usage was that opium had not found its main addictive partner, tobacco. A key element of the addiction wave to come in Asia was the combination of tobacco and opium. Tobacco is a key finding in North America that Columbus brought back to Europe and it then made its way onto Asia. When the two were mixed together exactly is not clear. One theory is that it was a Portuguese sailor, while another was that it was in Indonesia, where herbs and tobacco and hemp were already being mixed. Smoking was the biggest catalyst of usage until the mid-1800s. The Dutch may have brought opium to Taiwan, though that seems unclear, and possibly was the first one to bring it to China as part of Western trade in the 1600s. At that point, tobacco smoking was already present in Chinese culture and had its own social complexities. Interestingly, by the early 1800s, there were concerns in medical texts in China about smoking tobacco, and so there were more people just smoking opium alone. Opium itself was seen as a luxury item when it first arrived. It was a novelty that it had foreign associations and was desirable as a result. Opium initially had intricate rituals associated with it, Rich families would often have a special chef who would help cook the opium. And as more opium was brought into China, it became more available across different classes. One thing that was common amongst all classes was that opium consumption was an inherently social activity. Opium dens would become more popular and prove to be a place of social convening. By the 19th century, the association with opium and foreigners persisted, but switched to having a much more negative connotation. I'll be upfront that this is not going to be a comprehensive history of the rise of opium usage in China. In order to do that, we'd have to go into a lot more of the general history and how things in China were changing as the Ming Dynasty was ending and the Qing Dynasty was starting its 120-plus-year rule, a rule that would have three emperors and would provide a stretch of stability and prosperity for China. If you want to learn some more about this time period, check out the China History podcast, episodes 31 through 34, on the Ming Dynasty and 35 through 41 on the Qing Dynasty. Or you can just read Imperial Twilight by Stephen Wright, which is what mainly informed this part of the episode. As mentioned, the favorable circumstances in China would lead to an explosion of population during the reign of Emperor Chiang Long. Between the 1740s and the 1790s, the population doubled, reaching between 300 and 400 million in 1794. In case you're wondering, that was about a third of the world's population at the time. As the popularity of smoking opium started increasing, even before this specific population explosion took place, the government failed to reel in opium usage. The edict in 1729 supposedly came about due to an overdose of the emperor's son. As the population started to increase, some challenges started to present themselves. For one, government taxes would not grow in line with the population growth. This seems counterintuitive given how we're taxed today, but at the time the Chinese government had in place a system of land taxes. This meant regardless of whether there were two full 20 people living in one home, the same tax was paid. This placed greater importance on the tax revenue from foreign trade coming in from Canton. Some problems started arising in relation to the civil appointment exam system. While the anonymous exam system had helped in the past, as the population increased, more and more people found themselves educated and left without ambitious career prospects, especially if they ended up failing the exams. Many of those who held the desired roles would demand bribes to get jobs, as well as for, well, just about anything. When the White Lotus Rebellion would start later in the century, Some officials were pocketing funds from Beijing that were meant to pay the salaries that made up army members as well as taking the money meant to go to the families of those who died putting down the rebellions. So yeah, corruption was very rife. And when speaking of corruption in China at this time, it's important to mention He Shen. And again, as always, apologies for butchering names. He was a Manchu courier who found the good graces of the emperor. Laszlo in the China History Podcast referred to He Shen as the Rasputin of his time, someone who managed to leverage his personal relationship with the ruler in order to strengthen his personal position. He was tremendously corrupt and managed the flow of information to the emperor and spoke on the emperor's behalf, especially as he was aging. As the 18th century went on, the Qing dynasty's western frontiers became a focal point of imperial efforts. The modern China that you might see on a map today was effectively shaped around this time. Given the variety of changes that were taking place, enforcing any opium edicts proved futile throughout the century. In addition to these changes taking place in the second half of the 1700s in China, the British were also extending their reach and control in the region through the British East India Company. Before 1757, the U.K. and, in turn, the U.S., received the bulk of their opium from Turkey and some from Iran and Egypt. The Battle of Plassey and the beginnings of the British monopoly of opium was really just starting to take hold at this point, granted the growing supply from India would mainly go to China and other Asian countries. One thing I didn't mention about Robert Clive in the previous episode was his own opium usage. He himself heavily used the substance and it contributed to some of his own health issues and his ultimate overdose. I do want to remind you that the increased opium usage that is being seen in China in the 17 to 1800s is not only happening there, though it's happening at a greater rate than in other places. In India, smoking was seen as a highly social event, and smoking opium in an agila or hookah were quite common. This was also being seen in other Southeast Asian countries, including modern Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, Pakistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. Coming back to China, it was really the main consumption market in the region and the world overall. In the 1760s, opium usage was still mainly relegated to wealthy individuals who would smoke socially with others. This would include fancy smoking apparatuses and nice smoking spaces and fancy smoking dens. Over the coming decades, smoking opium started to become more common across the board, extending to the middle class and then the lower class individuals in the city and then the peasants and farmers closer to the 19th century. Opium consumption would increase despite the Qing dynasty's edict in 1729. 150 years later, by 1879, consumption in China hit 25,000 tons. By 1906, 60% of Chinese adult men and 40% of adult women smoked 15 grams of opium a year for festive purposes by some estimates. Light users would number around 37.8 million, of whom about 16 million were addicted, which was roughly 6% of the adult population. Other areas of production outside of India included French Indochina, Siam, or modern-day Thailand, which the French had not encroached on yet, and Korea. It seems as though Chinese traders were the ones who had initially introduced opium to Siam back in 1280. By 1839, the ruler in Siam stepped up prohibition in response to British trade in the region. The British were aware of the views in Siam and, and instead focused more attention on other areas, granted some smugglers continued to go wherever demand would bring them. By the 1850s, there were between 15 and 25,000 people involved in selling or preparing opium in Siam. These sorts of trends contributed to what was being seen as a general opium crisis in China and areas in the region in the 19th century. The tensions relating to increasing opium production and sales would start to bring more opium back home, which would in turn highlight a tension that was one of the main underlying currents present throughout the second half of the 19th century. While Western governments were starting to become more concerned with usage at home and about the role of their governments and merchants in the drug markets abroad, governments such as the British were themselves dependent on the revenues coming from opium. At some points, this dependence centered around the desires for growth, and at other points it played an important role in funding efforts against the French and other empires. So with that, let's shift gears and look at the West. As we shift to the West, I want to take a moment to go over the new culture of intoxication as it was called by Lucy Ingalls in Milk of Paradise. The 1660s saw the gin craze in Britain. Consumption of gin in England and Wales would start to seriously grow, going from 1.23 million gallons in 1700, 2 million roughly 15 years later, and then by 1751, over 7 million gallons. This meant that a gallon per person, counting the whole population, was being consumed annually. As the gin craze took hold, opium products did not start getting used widely in Britain yet that would change as the love affair with gin cooled. Though opium wasn't part of the overall rise of intoxication in the West, laudanum and other opium-based medicines were slowly starting to become more popular in Europe generally, and were starting to get used more as well. To paint opium as a problem that was solely taking place in Asia around this time wouldn't be accurate. By the middle of the 18th century, the middle class in both Britain and its colony that would later become the United States we're starting to see increased usage in opium-based medicines. This marked the increasing presence of patent medicines in the U.S., which would contain an ever-increasing variety of intoxicants as the 19th century went on. In addition to the medicine, there was some usage of direct opium in Nantucket in the late 1700s. The U.S. also had its own love affair with liquor, though there would be a greater focus on rum from the West Indies. It is unclear how the first opium or laudanum made it to the U.S., it's possible that some settlers coming over from Europe had brought it over. And especially after a disruption of supplies during the Revolutionary War, traders would slowly start venturing out to Canton and other ports across Asia directly. Looking at Britain, the country had a population of about 10 million in 1827. The assumed consumption of laudanum and opiates was about 20,000 pounds that year, The increase in the overall presence and usage also led to shifting views of opium in the first half of the 19th century. Virginia Poe, Edgar Allan Poe's wife, was using a lot of laudanum as she was dealing with tuberculosis. There's a chance that Napoleon was even sipping some as he was witnessing the losses that his army sustained towards the end of his reign. He supposedly had a flask with some laudanum instead of brandy. Pope Pius VII was also noted as taking opium, and he gave us this lovely quote, I am told that this wonderful potion is prepared by ignorant and infidel Turks from a special kind of poppy. How inscrutable are the ways of the Almighty, End quote. The English poet John Keats wrote of opium in April 1819. He was one of a number of poets who ended up using opium regularly, including Henry David Thoreau, Mikhail Lermontov, Count Giamanco Leopardi, Alexandra Petofi and others. The work titled Confessions of an English Opium Eater by Thomas De Quincey came out in 1822. And writers weren't the only ones who were known to be using opiates. Composers such as Hector Berlioz, Karl Maria von Weber, and Jane Sterling were all users. Quoting from Thomas Dormandy's Opium, Reality's Dark Dreams, one historian commented, Opium, quote, was undoubtedly a Pandora's box of literary tools to the erudite and imaginative mind, to recollect otherwise lost experiences, after all, the very stuff of the writer's art. Opium provided unique visual images, afforded a kind of mental time travel, opened up new ways of observing the mundane, and acted as an aid memoir. By the 1840s, the usage of opium was extending from the wealthier and creative circles to the masses. And even by the 1830s, the usage of opium was already starting to change. English pubs were offering beer mixed with opium. One writer visiting Norfolk around then was surprised by how widely opium pills, or OPIC as it was known, was prevalent. Some even fed it to their pigs to calm them down. There were even attempts to grow opium domestically in Britain, though they never really met demand due to the labor costs. That would actually be the same in the U.S. as well. In the 1830s, a lump of opium was cheaper than gin and cheaper than all but the worst homebrewed beer. Another important thing to note in terms of what contributed to more people using patent medicines in the West was that there had been a number of disease epidemics that arose in 1830, 1848, and in 1853. And all of these helped spread the use of more medicines, especially as the poor were reluctant to go to a doctor. It was in the 1840s that very popular opium patent medicines started to proliferate. Stott's unique fruit cordial, which was 3% opium, was meant to help kids quiet. In Vienna, which had a reputation since 1810 as one of the best tourist cities in Europe, opium was at the core of the city's popularity. So there were two strands to opium usage at this point in Britain. The educated middle class on one side, while those without access or the desire to access doctors on the other the French would have their own journey with substances. French chemists worked on isolating morphine, nicotine, caffeine, codeine, and found a chemical related to chloroform in the first three decades of the 1800s. And just on chloroform for a moment, while in 1855 250 grams were being used in France, that grew to 10 kilograms within 20 years. The French were also exporting to the British throughout this time. But the usage of opium within France was also tied to the growth in medicine, hospitals, and the use of asylums for dealing with those who were deemed to be madmen. These asylums were interesting as the state and medical interests met at these institutions, leading to further rises in opiate usage. Starting in 1850, morphine became the painkiller and drug of choice. As morphism, or morphomania, or whatever you want to call the addiction to morphine, rose, the doctors responsible for much of its usage tried curing the addiction with cocaine and heroin, which obviously turned out perfectly. This relationship between the rise in medicine and pharmaceuticals showed that people in the lab coats, quote-unquote, were able to lock up people without lawsuit or oversight in many countries. From 1827 to 1857, the vast majority of opium came from Turkey with a bit from Egypt. By 1870, more of the supply was coming from China, Persia, Egypt, France, and some others. Over 70% was still coming from Turkey in these years, and there are some years, such as 1895, where that number would go as high as 95%. But opium from other places was starting to make its way to the West more often. Quick aside on morphine. In short, morphine was synthesized in the early 1800s, hypodermic needles were invented in the mid-1800s, and heroin in the late 1800s. We'll talk about this more in the next episode, but the important part to know is that some of the reaction against opium was in response to morphism, as the morphine problem was referred to. As just mentioned, an important tool in the rise of morphine was the hypodermic needle, which was invented in 1853. As with opium itself, morphine was very linked to pain management, Initially, consumer self-injection was allowed, though the views on that changed after roughly 20 years. A lack of proper sterilization led to issues for some self-injectors. Morphine made it seem as though freedom from pain might be possible. That freedom, however, came with its own price, which was noted by the person who first isolated the molecule. Issues with usage would increase throughout the 19th century. I mentioned earlier that there was a general split between the nature of usage in the East and the West, with smoking being more popular in the former and medicines in the latter. If we fast forward for a moment, we'll see that between 1892 and 1901, morphine imports into Shanghai increased from 450 kilograms to over 3 tons. One important use for analgesics, at least in the eyes of governments, is to help soldiers during times of war. The Civil War in the U.S. was timed such that morphine was much appreciated by those who needed help managing the pain of their injuries. Due to the overall differences in medicine, soldiers in the Civil War were eight times more likely to die from wounds than soldiers in World War II, and they were ten times more likely to die of disease. Two percent of the male population died in the war, with more than half dying from disease while in a hospital or in a prison. All of this meant that opium powder was used widely throughout the war at least when it was available. The Confederate army had a tougher time sourcing such medicines and were relegated to smuggling. To get a sense of the overall usage during the war, in 1865 the Union issued 10 million opium pills and 2.8 million ounces of other opiates. Morphine usage after the war was referred to as the army disease. While the exact levels of addiction are contested, there are some reasons to believe that there may have been an increase after the war, at least temporarily. The rise of addiction really rose as we got close to 1900. According to David Courtright, the rate of opium addiction in the 1890s reached 4.6 per 1,000. To really understand the changing nature of opium usage, the last part of this episode will explore how the arrival of Chinese laborers played into opium usage in the US, and more importantly, the beginnings of prohibition. By the second half of the 19th century, the population of the U.S. had changed dramatically. Slavery had been abolished, Native Americans had been slaughtered from the time Westerners arrived, and the flow of European immigrants was mainly going to the East Coast at first. The gold rush would see Chinese laborers coming over to the West Coast, and Chinese labor became a more commonplace element for railroad construction as well. The use of opium by Chinese laborers was noted to have two advantages for countries such as Britain. Opium helped dull pain and help workers deal with diarrhea, dysentery, malaria, and other types of fever. Additionally, the use of opium itself boosted profits. Timothy Brook and Bob Tadashi Wakabayashi said, quote, Opium gave foreign powers the financial wherewithal to make colonial empire building feasible, end quote. At the same time, empire building on the part of European colonizers made large-scale opium production, trading, and consumption possible in of itself. So not only was the opium trade crucial to the European countries in Asia, but it also linked to the Chinese laborers who moved across the world. So let's jump to San Francisco. In 1849, there were 325 people of Chinese origin in the city. Ten years later, that grew to 25,000. Soon, 10% of California's population was Chinese, and opium dens sprung up in San Francisco. The Central Pacific Railroad Company of California hired 50 Chinese workers in 1865. By 1867, 90% of their workforce, roughly 12,000 workers, was Chinese. As discussed with Carolyn Acker, some of the earliest laws that focused on prohibition in the U.S. were racial in nature. In 1858, the state legislature in California tried to make it illegal for Chinese or Mongolians to come into the state but the Supreme Court threw the case out shortly thereafter. The Anglo Treaty of 1880 rewrote the agreements of trade and relations and allowed for the U.S. to suspend immigration from China. In 1882, though, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, which did prohibit the immigration of Chinese coming into the U.S. FYI, the Chinese Exclusion Act, in some form, persisted until 1943. But before the act came in, the gold rush and mining in general proved to be another source of employment for the Chinese laborers coming over. The employment came with the presence of opium. One example comes from Deadwood in South Dakota, which was established at the end of the gold rush. In 1880, there was a small Chinese community making up 116 of the total 5,000 miners. That number might have been higher, possibly closer to 400, but that's hard to determine definitively. Opium was sold through the theater, where a pipe of opium would cost 20 cents, and a dollar would fetch as much as the customer wanted before falling asleep. When it came to early prohibition, aside from immigration, medicine and pharmaceuticals were the other main focus for regulation. In 1858, Britain passed the Medical Reform Act, after which doctors needed to be licensed medical practitioners, and then the Pharmacy Act in 1868, which limited the sale of certain drugs over the counter without a doctor's prescription. In 1871, a review of 360 cases was completed and found that many of the users were wealthy women who, quote, idly lolling upon her velvety fauteuil waiting for the hours to pass were more susceptible to fall prey to opiate addiction, end quote. The president of the American Gynecological Society saw opium as a key medicine, so it should be no surprise that many women were prescribed opium-based medication. Morphine was thought to be less addictive than laudanum, so it was used as a substitute for some people. There are also some estimates that 30-40% of doctors may have been addicted themselves to morphine by the early 20th century. It's important to note that death rates were already dropping before the Progressive Era Prohibition began in earnest by the second decade of the 20th century. There was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment and xenophobia at the end of the 19th century in London or Liverpool or other industrial cities across Britain. The British government was also greatly concerned over the cocaine trade as well as the morphine trade. This highlighted the hypocrisy of the British, putting in place laws against opium usage at home while still driving the trade internationally. The second half of the 19th century saw increasing revenues from Asian colonies for countries such as England, France, and the Netherlands, amongst others. And so in the West, the two strands of usage had their own approaches. Smoking, mostly among Chinese immigrants and some local laborers, had an immigration policy focus. Laudanum and morphine, mostly used by wealthier women and later working young men and laborers, had more of a medicinal and pharmaceutical focus. These disparities would continue and would also impact the kinds of treatment of different social, racial, and economic backgrounds would receive. To recap, while the East was witnessing some tremendous rates of increase in the use of opium smoking, the West was dealing with different issues with patent medicines and after the Civil War with more and more morphism. As the quantity of Chinese laborers in the West increase, anti-Chinese sentiment would follow as well. And so the two strands, with immigration policy and more pharmaceutical-focused policy, on the other hand, was really starting to take hold. And the two different strands of usage, split between more smoking and use of pharmaceuticals or patent medicines, would become more complicated with the introduction of heroin and, two decades later, prohibition. In the next episode of the season, we're going to take a look at the evolution of opium as a medicine during the 1800s and the beginnings of Prohibition. From there, we'll take a look at the impacts of Prohibition on markets, and we'll move on to see how markets changed as a result of Prohibition. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits to Blue Dot Sessions on the music and BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sound, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter, at Drugs History, or over email, drugshistory at gmail.com. I'm also going to include some information on our guest in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and rate on iTunes. Be well.